So we continue our readings from Acts, Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And we move to chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Antioch is the church that really launched the global Christian faith, really, from there. And we'll see why it was that one. But first of all, just to ask you a question. How do you think Christianity came to Britain in the first place? Many of you will doubtless think, ah, oh, yeah, I've heard of Augustine, but not Augustine, who's the more famous one, who was around about 400 AD and was writing at the time of the collapse of the Roman Empire. Now, this is Augustine of Canterbury, as he came to be known as, who was sent by Pope Gregory in about 5986, sometime around then, um, to link up with King Ethelbert of Kent. But there already was a Christian church in existence. There was the Celtic or Ionian church of Ireland, Scotland and the very north 
of England. And there was one in all the rest of what we now call England. Origin and Tertullians with, uh, Tertullian were theologians who wrote around about the 200 AD. And they tell us that the Christian church by then extended to every province of the Roman Empire, including Britannia. Now, how did Christianity arrive here? Well, it wasn't because of any pope or archbishop or bishop or monks. There weren't any monks in the first and the second century AD. It was ordinary Christian lay people going about their normal business. Traders from Gaul, France, or Germania. Artisans, those with skilled techniques in building and doing various sort of silverware and things. They crossed the channel to, uh, you know, to sell their skills to those who were well-to-do. And some of the first Christians would have been um, uh, auxiliary troops in the Roman army. Now, we know little about them, but we do find things like wall paintings in villas such as uh, Lullingston. We see mosaics in Frampton. There's even engraved jewellery as close as Thraxton, which has Christian symbols on it, near Andover. And there were church buildings. You would find one up the road in uh, Caliva Atribatum, Silchester. And often in them, they would have the Cairo monogram. And um, that was one of the uh, most distinctive Christian symbols of that period. To us, it would look like an X with what looks to us like a P going straight down the middle of it. Now, X in, in the Greek alphabet is, in English, CH. And a P in the Greek alphabet is, to us, an R. So what you have are the first three letters of Jesus' title, Christ. It's that that, dis, you know, that that points out that Christians were around. And it was rank-and-file Christians, the likes of you, not the likes of me, the laity, not the clergy, who God used to convert the Cantii of Kent, the Belgae of Wiltshire, the Atribates of uh, North Hampshire and Berkshire, and the Iceni who covered East Anglia. And so it has always been the laity get there first. I remember watching a video a few months ago from Indonesia of a seamstress who moved from one part of the country where there were many Christians to another part where the Christian church was comparatively weak. Now, why did she do that? Well, she went to share the gospel. Being a seamstress involves one-to-one -one contact with other women. And then, of course, as I understand it, um, uh, follow-up meetings for fittings and further alterations and later on repairs. It is an ideal job for forging and sustaining relationships, for gossiping the gospel. And that's what some Christians 
driven from Jerusalem by the persecution by the Jews that erupted within a few years of uh, Jesus's ascension. And we learned that it really kicked off with the martyrdom of Stephen. And then they spread out. They ran away from the persecution. And so a crisis turned into an opportunity. And we've learned how it spread geographically and religiously, first from Jerusalem to Samaria, and then from Jerusalem to uh, Gentiles like the Roman centurion Cornelius. But now they are going further afield, some to Phoenicia, which is basically uh, Lebanon today, to Cyprus and to Antioch. We read verse 19, telling the message only to Jews. But some of them were innovative. We read, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, which is north uh, Libya today, went to Antioch and didn't just speak to Greek-speaking Jews, they branched out and were speaking to Greek Gentiles themselves. Those embracing Greek culture. Now, the promise, what's happening here, is the promise that was made by God to Abraham 2,000 years before about him creating a nation through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And the commission of the Lord Jesus at the time of his ascension that they were to teach, baptize, and make disciples of all nations, was now being enacted. It was clearly what the Lord wanted done, as we read in verses 20 to 21, how um, they began to tell them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Christians, originally from uh, Cyprus, and Cyrene, and doubtless Nicholas of Antioch, who's one of the, uh, one of the six who are chosen as, um, as deacons in uh, Acts chapter, or seven in Acts chapter six, who were chosen as deacons, that um, he probably was also one of those who would have dispersed to there. And they turned to Christ, they had turned to Christ on the day of Pentecost, when they'd been there on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and Peter preached to them. And they'd have been very familiar with their own Gentile culture. They may have been Gentile converts, in fact, to Judaism first, and then became Christian converts and embraced the Lord Jesus. You see, God had prepared these people like that Indonesian seamstress, to be the most suited to reach the inhabitants of Antioch. And Antioch was no accidental random choice. It was also well suited to be the first international Christian church, the one that would be used to launch global Christianity. Antioch had been founded around 300 BC by one of Alexander the Great's generals, Seleucus Nicator. He named Antioch after his father, Antiochus, and its port, 15 miles to the west, on a navigable river called the Orontes, Seleucia, after himself. Now, in Luke's day, it was also known as Antioch the Beautiful because of its very fine buildings. And although it was a Greek city by foundation, 
its population, which is estimated to be half a million people, was extremely cosmopolitan. It had a large colony of Jews who'd been attracted by the fact that Seleucus offered them equal citizenship. And they had many Orientals, people from the East, from Persia, India, and even China. And it earned its name to be the Queen of the East. And it was absorbed into the Roman Empire through Pompeii in 64 BC, and it became the capital of the imperial province of Syria, with the Greeks, Jews, Orientals, and Romans forming what Josephus called the third city of the empire, after Rome and Alexandria. Now these Jews from the diaspora were less strict than the traditionalist Pharisees that you'd find in and around Jerusalem. They were quite used to eating with Gentiles and doing business with Gentiles. And they were not only better prepared, having grown up with Gentiles, but they were far more likely to be inclined to share the faith with Gentiles than those from a very traditional Jewish background back in Judea who thought Gentiles were like dogs. So God had caused the right people to gather in the right place for the launch of this global mission. There was no grand plan, no strategic development project, except, of course, in the mind of God himself, but rather the rank-and-file Christians passing on the good news that they had received and that had changed them to others for their eternal benefit. And that is what is most needed today. Be bold, be strong, for the Lord your God is with you, as the Lord said to Joshua as he was to enter the promised land. Now, um, 22 to 24, the second feature of this cosmopolitan church at Antioch, which was the base for turning the world upside down, was having an encouraging pastor who was called Barnabas, Literally in Aramaic, his name means son of encouragement. It was his nickname. In other words, it was a reflection of, if you like, his personality. His actual name was Joseph. Well, Antioch, this cosmopolitan city, was predominantly Gentile, and they were diverse from just about everywhere going. And, of course, they had with them diverse religions and worldviews. And the Jews who were there were of the more relaxed variety. So as they, the apostles, had done with the Samaritans and had done with the conversion of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, the apostles in Jerusalem thought it was necessary to check them out. So they sent not an apostle this time, but somebody who was particularly familiar with both Jewish and Gentile um, contexts, Barnabas, a Jew who'd been brought up in Cyprus, to be their apostolic delegate and to check them out. They didn't want something that was masquerading as Christian, 
when in fact it wasn't one. And when he arrived, verse 23, we read, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He saw lives change. He saw people had changed from the cultural norm of immorality in that place. There's bucket loads of writing about how their immorality rivaled that of Pompeii in Italy. And how they had changed from adhering to irrational, superstitious nonsense from the East to a rather coherent worldview that corresponded to life as people found it. It was the best explanation. It had the ring of truth to it. And the grace of God was changing people's lives through their thinking and their behaviour. And Barnabas' response, we read, was that he was glad at such a good outcome to hearing the gospel. And he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. John Stock comments, an exhortation both to perseverance and to wholeheartedness. Again, two characteristics essential for living a faithful Christian life. Now Luke was impressed with Barnabas' character and describes him as, verse 24, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So no wonder we then read, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. He was an evangelistic encourager. Now the third ingredient of this church at Antioch that was necessary for it to carry out this international task was to have a sharp thinker and teacher, verses 25 and 26. And Saul was the man. Think about it. To understand the New Testament, you really need to know and understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament paves the way for the New. You can't understand certain aspects, for example, of the cross of Christ without having some appreciation of how the Old Testament sacrificial system worked and what it was pointing to, knowing that it was inadequate to do the job. The Gentile converts knew none of that. And then there's the Christian vocabulary. How is the Gentile world going to understand words like the kingdom of God properly? It could and did sound all too much like a rival political power liable to get them quite unnecessarily into trouble for all the wrong reasons. You might recall that in Athens, to give an example of Gentile misunderstanding, we have the Apostle Paul engaged in kind of debate and dialogue with the, those who sat around all day thinking, in uh, the Areopagus and that. And he was talking to them, we, re we read about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, the Greeks thought he was talking about two gods, Jesus and his consort, Anastasia, which is the feminine Greek word for resurrection. See, they were polytheists, and that's exactly what they thought Paul was. And that's why they thought he was talking about two gods, a god with his partner. So what's needed then 
you imagine that situation, is somebody who is well-versed in the Old Testament, someone who also understood the Gentile world and its worldviews, someone who was smart enough to be able to relate one to the other, and somebody who had fidelity to the Christian revelation, that he would be able as one commentator puts it, to overcome the barriers of cultural misunderstanding in the Gentile world without sacrificing the essential apostolic message. And Saul, as Paul, as he was to come to be known, was the man who was exactly matched for the moment. He had been born and brought up in southern Turkey, Tarsus in Cilicia, in a Gentile culture. But he was a Jew, and he was quite a strict Jew, he was of the Pharisees. And he had had the highest level of training available by studying under Gamaliel in Jerusalem, in what must have been a kind of little mini university for aspiring rabbis. And he possessed, by the grace of God, a brilliant mind to convey the Christian revelation into the, gen the Gentile world. And finally, he, had, he was somebody with very firm convictions that this revelation, the gospel, was the truth. And he would not sell out on it. So the background, the knowledge, the intellect, and the volition that was required was all found in him. Oh, as someone has said, it's all, all the gifts that a congregation needs for growth are rarely found in one individual. And that would be true of Paul, as talented as he was. Barnabas' humility, you see, Though he was quite obviously a very effective evangelist in explaining the Christian faith and persuading people to embrace it, verse 24, we read that uh, great numbers of people were brought to the Lord. His humility is displayed by knowing he needs somebody else. And that's why he brought Paul on board. And that meant, verse 26, a great number of people were taught now up to this point, the converts had been referred to as disciples or saints, brethren, believers, being saved, and people of the way. It was now at Antioch that the locals, presuming Christ was a name and not a title as it is, called the followers of Christ Christianoi, just as the followers of King Herod were called Herodianoi, and just as the followers of Caesar were called Caesarianon, they gave it, they gave the Christians their distinctive name. Christ was the centre of their lives. And fourthly at Antioch, there was a solid Christian community. It's been, um, it had been from Jerusalem, from the church there, that the gospel had been given to Antioch to meet their greatest spiritual need. And now, at a time of famine, the Antioch church responded 
by meeting the physical need of the Jerusalem church. Gentile Christians from the north helping their fellow Hebrew Christians in the south. There's 300 miles between them. It is a different Roman province and that Antioch would have been pretty decidedly anti-Semitic in many ways. But here what we have is a culture growing up in the church of showing concern for Hebrew Christians and voluntarily having a collection to help those Christians in need and then sending their two principal leaders to deliver it. And in so doing, they were cementing and preventing what could have easily become two separate churches, a Gentile church and a Jewish Christian church. The Jewish historian, by the way, Josephus, confirms that there was such a famine in Judea at this time. And we read that they gave according to their ability, verse 29, to those in need, a term used earlier in Acts, in Acts 2 and in Acts 4. According to their ability to those in need. Does that have echoes of Karl Marx's from each according to his ability to each according to his need? But there's a massive difference between Marxism and Christianity. What we have here is voluntary giving that saved lives. Marxism is compulsory and has involved, according to the French newspaper Le Figaro, the death of 137 million people to establish the Soviet Union, the People's Republic of China, Pol Pot's Kampuchea. And it's on the wane. And lastly and fifthly, we have a diverse and discerning leadership, chapter 13, verse 3 verses. This was a decisive turning point in what made this church um, and launch this global Christian, Christian faith. Up until this point, there'd been no strategic plan. The church had grown simply as a consequence of persecution and the pioneering of individuals like Philip. Now there's a deliberate next step. It's most natural to take it that the prophets and teachers were the five named and that they had the conviction that God was calling them as a church to send out missionaries. They were certainly a diverse bunch reflecting the cosmopolitan nature of the church at Antioch. It works best when you have leaders who are, if you like, indigenous, who share the same culture as the church. Now Luke doesn't explain the distinction between the two ministries, nor whether the five exercised both ministries or just one of them. But what he does tell us is what their names were. Barnabas was a Levite from Cyprus. We know that from Acts 4. Simeon, which is a Hebrew name, was called Niger, which means black. And that would suggest that he was a black African, perhaps none other than Simon of Cyrene. 
who'd been pressed ganged into carrying the crossbar of Jesus' cross on the way to Golgotha. And he must have become a Christian believer since his sons Alexander and Rufus mentioned in Mark's Gospel were known to the Christian community. Then there's Lucian of Cyrene, another from North Africa. Menahem, which is um, a Greek version of Menahem, which is Hebrew. And he's described as the syntrophos of Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. The word means something like brought up with, and it can either mean there's a certain informality in the relationship, or it could mean that he is a foster child. Now this may well explain why Luke knows so much about Herod's household. He has a source. And what's interesting, what is uh, interesting here, is the testimony to God's grace that two men who have been brought up in the same family have so vastly different outcomes. One becomes an unscrupulous politician who contributed towards the execution of Christians and the other found himself the leader of this church in Antioch. And finally there is Saul, the Hellenistic Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia from southern Turkey. And they were fasting and praying and they received this conviction that they should set aside two of their number, Barnabas and Saul, to embark on the first missionary journey to take the gospel further afield. And it's important to know how this worked for our decision-making today. So to whom was this conviction revealed? To the five alone or to the congregation? Well, it's most likely, it may have started with the five, but it certainly included the whole congregation because it is the church that's mentioned in verse 1. If you look at Acts 6, how they chose deacons, they arose from within the church and the apostles merely confirmed the selection. And then there is um, the fact that when Paul and Barnabas come back, it is to the church as a whole that they report to what was revealed to the church? Well, there was a clear call, but what's less clear is precisely, apart from the first step of going to Cyprus, as to where they should go. It's a bit like Abraham, 2,000 years before, where he was set, told to set out from Ur, and he obeyed that. But he didn't quite know where exactly he was going to end up. These guys knew they were to go out and share the gospel. Exactly where God would lead them, time would tell. Now, how was it disclosed to them, this conviction? Well, we're not told. But they would, would seem to have a sense of the rightness of this particular course of action. It may have come intuitively, to begin with, to one or two, and then as they shared it and others thought about it and prayed about it, that they concurred that this was what God wanted them to do. And their response to this sense of direction was to pray them off, to commission them. But who did the commissioning? Well, we have verse 4, the Holy Spirit. We have verse 3, the laying on of hands. Now this gives the balance between the twin dangers of individualism and institutionalism. Individualism risks an immature Christian getting the idea in their head 
and ascribing it to God when all the other Christians think, I think they're deceiving themselves. Institutionalism is where no Christian can do anything unless the bishop gives permission. That's an attraction in a declining organization, but it is the kiss of death for the church. So the ingredients of a global church that we've looked at this morning are these. They have evangelistic laity. Some are natural evangelists. They could sell anything to anybody. But most are those who are called to witness to their faith. The change that has come in their life through basically understanding and embracing the gospel and being united with Christ. And that is how the church grew and that is how the church grows today. Then they had this encouraging pastor who assures them that they are on the right track and that they should press on. Then they got Saul, the sharp theological teacher, to help Christians understand the faith and apply it to their lives and to use it to demolish strongholds, to not just outlive the pagans, but outthink them, to out-argue with them. Our God is a rational God who communicates primarily and most clearly in words. Paul's assessment of uh, the people in Rome a few years later was professing themselves wise, they became as fools. And as our world seems at times to getting more like that, we're reminded that the Christians outlived and out-argued in the first century, and they'll do so again in the 21st century. The truth will out. Solzhenitsyn says, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. And there's this solid Christian community serving one another with all its diversity, at a cost, but voluntarily, as each one determined. And then there is this diverse, discerning leadership, at one with the people and involving and including them. Big enough that on novel decisions and on important decisions, they involve the whole church. Open to being checked and corrected by others, that way, you not only get, or you're more likely to get, the right outcome, what God wants, but you'll also win hearts and minds as everybody will be heading in the same direction, volitionally, not compulsorily. Take the other course of dictation, manipulation, and you lose the people's trust. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful work that you did in Antioch around about uh, 40, 42 AD, and how it was the launch from which we, 2,000 miles away, that our ancestors here, that they came to embrace the gospel. May we just follow these rather simple guidelines, particularly the one about us gossiping the gospel and having confidence and uh, 
having skill to do so. We pray that we might turn this century around just as the early church did in their first century. Amen.